When the great Irish prince of Victorian ghost stories, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, finally slipped through the veil in 1873, one of the first people the family informed was a close friend, Frederick Temple Blackwood, the first Marquis of Dufferin and Ava. The two men were known to speak of one another often and held each other in the highest regard. Le Fanu, most famous for his classic stories Carmilla and Green Tea, was a master of the supernatural in the eyes of the public. Most famously, of course, going on to influence M.R. James and eventually H.P. Lovecraft as well. But Dufferin too was a man who was to be forever associated with a supposedly true ghost story. A classic Victorian urban legend, a two-beat tale of horror and a warning of disaster. It's the stuff of fireside tales and winter nights, of brandy and cigars. And we're going to investigate the matter, seeking out primary sources whenever possible to find out where this story really came from. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods, located somewhere in Wild West Cork, I take a critical look at stories of the strange. It's humid and sticky at the moment, but the nights are finally starting to close in, which makes it the right time for an old-fashioned ghost story, and this one features one of the greatest characters of the Victorian age. Now, there wasn't any brandy at hand, so this time I'm enjoying a bottle of Galway Hooker Ale, which isn't what it sounds like. It's named after the boats that ply the waters of Galway Bay off Ireland's west coast. So grab yourself a brew and get settled for a classic tale in this episode, Lord Dufferin's Irish Ghost Story. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, folks, welcome to the show. A few housekeeping things first. Uh, firstly, off the bat, I was hoping to have our audio drama, Dawn of the Wild out um, this Saturday, but that's not going to happen. It's proving to be more work than I first anticipated. Basically what it is is a a fictional story about the beginnings of the Bigfoot phenomena in California in the 1950s. I have numerous great actors and musicians working on it with me. I'm super privileged to have their their talents and their hard work. I'm really excited about this. I'm a little bit nervous. It's not the sort of thing we've done before on the show. It's going to be a standalone episode and you know I just I need to take my time with it I want it to be done properly rather than having it out on time so for that reason this episode Lord Dufferin's Irish Ghost Story is something of a rerun it is an old episode of my original show Strange Ireland now I think it really holds up and I'm proud to present it here on this channel Um, apart from that it doesn't really have a home anywhere online which is the same for all of my old episodes Uh, So I do hold on to them just in case I'm in a pinch. And I am in a pinch this week because I've been working so hard on Dawn of the Wild. Hopefully at the moment that will be coming out on Wednesday. If you're interested in that, get in touch with us and um, or or sign up and uh, subscribe so that you can get it right into wherever it is that you get your podcast. So that's why this is a bit of a rerun. But if you are not If you were not a follower of our old show, it should be new to you. Those old episodes, by the way, they're all fully researched and scripted, which takes a very long time. It's not how I make my episodes nowadays, mostly. I don't script them. So, you know, it was a tremendous amount of work, and I would like people to be able to hear them. So that episode, 
or this episode is from about 2017 or 18, I think. So um, the style will be a little bit different, but I think you'll enjoy it just the same. Now, we've had a bit of chatter online this week, just talking about a few interesting subjects that I'd like to mention. Firstly, all going according to plan, we should be getting a shout out for my show over at Real Life Ghost Stories podcast. So Emma and Dan on that show were really super nice when I reached out to them. They were really friendly and helpful. And I'm, I'm really chuffed that they're happy to read out my little promo. If you have found us through them, if you're a fan of Real Life Ghost Stories, you're very, very welcome. Uh, we do things a little bit differently here, but I think there's enough crossover that you'll enjoy what we do. So huge thanks again to Emma and Dan for getting that out. Uh, if it isn't this week, I'm sure it'll be some other time. Uh, also, uh, over on Twitter, we had a message from Cabal Minion uh, asking, would we do an episode about the Blue Mountains cat, which is an, an alien big cat sighting um, associated with the Blue Mountains of Australia. So I do, I love crypt cryptozoology. It's one of my favorite kind of subsets of the weird, especially as my own background is in zoology. We did an episode about British big cats. We did um, one episode with Neil from the UK Wildlife Podcast, and that was mostly about, it was very broad, it was about sort of British mystery animals of all kinds, but we definitely spoke about the alien big cats on that one. I would be very happy to do an episode about the Australian variant. I find them, I find the alien big cats really interesting because it's one of those things that it could be real, there's no reason why it, it, it couldn't, and they do, a few have been found, so occasionally there turns out to be an actual literal physical core to the legend and yet in every other aspect they behave like folklore you get these sightings at impossible times or impossible places so it's like this core of reality surrounded by the myth the fog of of folklore which i think is tremendously instructive in learning how to interpret these kinds of stories cabal minion by the way check him out on twitter he's doing the good work by basically rolling up his sleeves and getting stuck into all that nasty QAnon stuff that Honestly, it's just too heavy for me. It's it's really important stuff. It's really worrying and scary stuff. And I'm glad people are out there dealing with it and, and trying to point out the problems and the inconsistencies with it. I find it all a bit much myself. I don't know if I'm going to do episodes about that sort of thing, but I'm very happy to promote people who are. So that's uh, Cabal Minion. I think he's at Minion on Twitter. Uh, do check him out. It, it's, it's not fun stuff, but it's important stuff. And uh, it's only going to become more relevant I think, as the months go by. Over on Instagram, we had a photograph up this week of uh, a t-shirt. We had a t-shirt for the Wide Atlantic Weird podcast. And basically, I'm just toying with the ideas of merchandise. I have a few other bits and pieces that I've ordered, and I'm just looking at the samples. I put up one picture for fun. So Chris Crispy Joyce got in touch, a friend of the show. Uh, he was talking to us about... The Alien Greys, we had two episodes called The Coming of the Greys, so check those out if you want to hear more from Mr. Chris Joyce. But he mentioned he'd be interested in a camo hat merchandise, so if we had a camo hat, he said, <laughs> like the sort that duck hunters wear in America, I, I was thinking Bigfoot hunters in America, but uh, yeah, I would wear one of those too, so if that's the sort of thing you'd like, uh, reach out to us, let us know. Over, also on Twitter, I had a fun chat this week with two musical artists, I think probably both both based in the UK, based on their content. They are Grey Frequency and Night Monitor. Um, I have both of their recent albums. Basically what they do is they make sort of 
I'm going to say electronica. I'm not I'm not an expert on sort of non-guitar-based music, but to me, uh, it sounds like electronica. But they make these incredibly evocative sort of soundscape um, musical pieces based on the sort of culture and folklore of very 1970s and 1980s sort of uh, mysterious thinking. So Grey Frequency, for example, had an album a couple of years ago called Ufology, Ufology, which is based based on the the history of mostly 1970s British UFO encounters. So that it's it's tremendously good fun. It's it's genuinely spooky, and if you like kind of like weird kids television from the 70s and the 80s that was a little bit disturbing. If you collected the uh, Osborne books about the UFOs and all of that sort of thing, basically that's what he's dipping into. Night Monitor, on the other hand, has a recent album called This House is Haunted, which if you're a, a ghost story buff, you'll recognize as a shout out to the 1977 Enfield Poltergeist Haunting. If you're not up in your sort of paranormal lore, that's the basis for the, I think, the second of the Conjuring movies. Basically, it's it's a London suburb where there's a poltergeist case in 1977. It was very famous. It was very publicized. And uh, the fellow who investigated that one, uh, Guy Lyon Playfair, wrote a book called This House is Haunted. And uh, that's what the album is named after. Man, it's incredibly spooky. It's It's really... It's really weird stuff. So it's all electronic sounds and soundscapes. A little bit Pink Floyd, I suppose. I guess I'm stretching for a comparison here just because my knowledge of electronic music is so poor, but very much worth checking out. If you're interested in this sort of stuff that I talk about, I think you'll like it. Anyway, I had a great chat with both of these fellows about the the World of the Unknown series, which was a, a 1970s series of books by Osborne. So if you were... If you grew up in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s, there were reprints of these, and it was incredible. All the illustrations in them were brilliant. There was a book about UFOs, there was one about monsters, and there was one about ghosts as well, and they were collected in a single volume. So all of us got to sort of sharing our photographs of the old books that we still have, and that was great fun. Those books were the first place I learned about a lot of the kind of standard stories of ghost monsters and UFOs as well. So great stuff. And there was actually a campaign... I think two years ago, to republish some of those. Uh, I still have all my old ones, so I I didn't get too stuck into that, but I was very pleased uh, to see it anyway. Over on Instagram, I had a little chat with uh, some of the folks from Cryptid Campfire, which is also a podcast. Basically, they had a picture. uh, They were sharing UFO pictures, and there was one I recognized as the, the classic George Adamski 1950s flying saucer. I had to chime in. And I had a great chat with uh, one of the proprietors of the of the channel uh, where he, he just mentioned basically, yeah, he, he lives quite close to Mount Palomar in California, which is where George Adamski, he was one of the 19... I think he was probably the first key 1950s contactee UFO person. He later became, well, quite early on, actually, he became a sort of a guru, a bit of a new age person. He wrote a book with a fellow called Desmond Leslie in 1953 called... Flying saucers have landed, and Desmond Leslie was a an, an, another Anglo-Irish uh, sort of eccentric aristocrat of the sort who shows up on my show all the time. And we're about to we're about to tell another story about one of them. Uh, so he just mentioned how he lived close to Mount Palomar and uh, how his son Heineck had visited the the hamburger stand where uh, George Adamski was working while he was pretending to be a, a doctor or a professor, I believe. He, he would he would talk to local people who were driving up to the observatory and he would stop them and say, hello, I'm, I'm Dr. Adamski. Would you like to talk about astronomy and, and space and, and flying saucers? 
uh, but really he was working at a hamburger stand <laughs> kind of pretending that he was maybe more than he was but a very interesting fellow altogether and i was very pleased to hear a story from crypto campfire about the the proprietor's son whose name was heinick which uh, again if you're a ufo book named after j allen heinick who of course headed up the the project blue book which was the famous uh, british or rather american uh, air force research institute into ufos from 1947 until the 1960s changing its name a few times there was a tv series i think in 2018 called blue book where Heineck is played by the Irish actor Aidan Gillen. It's it's okay. It's not amazing. So yeah, that's that's Instagram. Um, so uh, if you want to talk to us yourself on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. Over on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Um, I have one of the Osborne books here with me as I speak because we're about to uh, delve into this classic episode about Lord Dufferin's ghost. And the first place I ever came across this story was from an Osborne book, The Supernatural Guides, Haunted Houses, Ghosts and Spectres. It's an amazing book. I might post some pictures of it on Instagram this week just to drum up some interest in this episode. The writers are Eric Maple and Lynn Myring. Now, Lynn Myring, I don't know anything about, but Eric Maple seems to have been a fairly well-known English folklorist. Did a lot of work in Essex, where I spent some time, if you listen to older episodes and seems to have been an all-round good guy. A lot of the storytelling and story collecting seemed to happen in the pub when it came to Mr. Eric Maple. So I'm excited to find out some information about the, the writer after so many years. This was probably my first ever sort of ghost story book. And yeah, the story of Lord Dufferin, the first time I ever came across it, was from this book. So without any more ado, I'm going to have a little rummage around in the cabin here, see if I can find the exact tape, slot it in, and uh, get yourself ready for a classic episode. Like many Irish folks of my generation, I've lived abroad for periods of time, and also like many of them, I've spent a bit of time living in Canada in particular. If, like me, you've ever utilised the Toronto underground public transport system, you may have wondered about some of the people behind the names that you'll see on the stops. Many of them were British politicians from the heyday of the empire, and one of the most colourful has got to be the man behind the name of Dufferin Station. To give him his full title, he was Lord Frederick Temple Hamilton Temple Blackwood, first Marquis of Dufferin and Ava, and he was born into a family of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy in County Down in what is today Northern Ireland. Now, Lord Dufferin was a great traveller, storyteller and writer. He represented the British Empire, often holding its highest positions all over the world, and was generally known as a wit and a raconteur. But during much of his life, the good Lord was most famous for a chilling ghost story he would often tell regarding a supernatural happening in Tullamore in County Offaly. Imagine sitting with this man, maybe at a table in a fine dining room at the end of a meal, or perhaps in a teak-panelled smoking room like this one, cigars burning low, brandy in hand. He is regaling the audience with tales of his travels and adventures when someone finally asks him for the one story everyone wants to hear, the famous ghost story. He looks at you with his steely eyes, puffs on his cigar and says, Certainly. Then he settles back into his chair, and his story begins.
As a younger man, Lord Dufferin would occasionally stay with some friends who lived at a great country manor outside Tullamore. The house was surrounded on all sides by fields. During the day it was a jolly landscape for a spot of shooting or horse riding, but at night, when inky blackness settled on the fields and hedgerows, the isolation became terrible. It was on one such night that Dufferin found himself unable to sleep. He rose from his bed and for some reason felt irresistibly drawn to his bedroom window. Unsure whether he was awake or still asleep and dreaming, he pushed aside the curtain and gazed out into the empty darkness. But to his surprise and horror, the scene was not entirely empty. Instead, the gaunt figure of a man was struggling across the lawn that lay beneath his window. It was bent over and he could see that it was carrying something large. Dufferin rubbed his eyes but the spectre did not go away and once it came close enough to the window it stepped into a patch of moonlight and he could see that it was in fact carrying a coffin on its back. The ghost lifted its head and a pair of piercing eyes burned into Dufferin's own. The creature on the lawn had the most ghastly face he had ever seen. A twisted mouth grinned, spectrally pale skin glowed in the darkness and then before Dufferin had time to react the ghost and the coffin vanished. In the morning, he remained unsure as to whether the whole thing had just been a dream, but the image of the man's face still haunted him. His hosts had no explanation for what he had seen. Many years later, Dufferin was serving as the British ambassador to France. He was at the Grand Hotel on Rue Scribe and queuing with his secretary to get into an elevator behind a group of other guests. He was just about to step over the threshold when the elevator operator turned his head and stared at Dufferin. The Lord froze, the blood suddenly ice in his veins as he gazed at the man's face. It was the face of the ghost he had seen at Tullamore. The ghoulish face cracked its crooked grin and said to Dufferin these immortal words, Room for one more? Dufferin was so shocked that he inadvertently grabbed the arm of his secretary and took a step backwards. That instant, a lift cable snapped and the elevator plunged to the bottom of the shaft. All inside it were killed. The ghost had saved his life. Later, he described the spectral elevator operator to the hotel authorities, but they said that the usual operator was sick that day, and the man who had been working in his place was a temp. Nobody knew anything about him. That's the story as it is usually told, of course allowing for some embellishment of details for effect. The story lived on after Dufferin himself, told and retold over many years, though always being associated with him as he would have wanted. The details of the story generally stay the same wherever I've encountered it, though the dates for both the Tullamore and Paris happenings vary quite a bit. Most seem to indicate that one or both incidents took place during the 1880s or 1890s, if they specify any date at all. Now, unfortunately, research appears to indicate that the story isn't true. Dufferin was the British ambassador to France between 1891 and 1896, but according to Lifted, A Cultural History of the Elevator, the famous elevator accident at the Grand Hotel in Paris 
which was also real, occurred far earlier, in 1878. It was a pretty horrible accident, and I reckon the memory of it must have influenced the later telling of the Dufferin tale. Here's what the book says. A broken casting connecting the piston to the undercarriage of the elevator at first caused the cab carrying the building superintendent, the elevator operator and a guest to be pulled to the top of the shaft by the counterweight. There, the cab's overhead suspension was ripped from its mounting and the cab plunged to the ground in free fall. All three were killed. So though the elevator accident was real, the timings just don't match. Interestingly, even assuming that the ghost story isn't true, I've still come across two very different versions of the sceptical explanation. Now one version holds that this story was a pre-existing Victorian era urban legend that Dufferin improved upon by making out that it had in fact happened to him, and that he told it frequently this way throughout his life. Well, who has never improved an urban legend by inserting themselves into it? Others maintain that the story never actually appeared until years after Dufferin's death and that he himself probably never even told it at all. So two very different versions there. Now some of this debunking was done by a BBC researcher named Melvin Harris in a 1986 book called Sorry You've Been Duped, reprinted in 2003 as Investigating the Unexplained, which confused me to no end during my research. Many other commentators have noted that the earliest traceable version of this story that includes Lord Dufferin is in a 1921 book by Camille Flammarion, Death and Its Mystery. Now this man we have met before. I've mentioned on the podcast previously, in the Bridie Murphy episode, that during the late 19th century, there were actually several famous cases in which mediums and psychics reported receiving mysterious communications from Mars. One of the most famous cases was a Swiss woman named Helene Smith. Her case was investigated and popularised and written about by the same Camille Flammarion. He was a French astronomer and hypnotist with a serious interest in New Age thinking and the occult. So in his book, Death and Its Mystery, Flammarion states that the ghost story was told to him in a letter by a psychologist named Maritre, someone who apparently knew Dufferin and sent this letter in July 1920 to Flamaria. His version of the story goes like this. One night, when Lord Dufferin had accepted, in Ireland, the hospitality of a friend, he awakened suddenly, preyed upon by an indefinable restlessness. He got up, went to the window, which was lighted by the moon, and saw distinctly in the shadow below him a man bearing a large burden on his shoulder. The man was walking slowly. When he passed before the house, it became manifest that he bore a coffin. He lifted his head. His face was so repulsive that Lord Dufferin was greatly struck. His gaze followed the apparition as it drew away, and he went back to bed where he had great difficulty in going to sleep once more. The morning of the next day, he questioned his host, but the latter could give him no enlightenment. He knew no one corresponding to the description of the person carrying the coffin, and no burial was awaited in the village. Some years later, Lord Dufferin was appointed ambassador to France. Determined faithfully to discharge the duties of his high position, he went one day to a diplomatic reception that was to be held in the Grand Hotel in Paris. His private secretary conducted him to a large lift, before which there were several state officials standing respectively in line. Lord Dufferin, passing them, 
bowed and was about to step into the lift when he gave an involuntary start. The employee who conducted the cable was ugly, surly looking and had precisely the features of the mysterious apparition of the Irish village. Moved by an instinctive impulse, the ambassador drew back. He retraced his steps, uttering some words of excuse and on the pretext that he had forgotten something, asked them to take up those who had gone on before without waiting for him. He then went to the hotel office to make inquiries as to the person who had caused his very natural emotion. But he did not have time. At that moment, a terrible crash was heard, mingled with cries of anguish. The lift, reaching a certain height, had dropped suddenly to the bottom of the shaft. The accident is historic, and its precise date could be easily verified. The mysterious employee was killed with those whom he was taking up. His origin could not be traced. He was, it was said, an extra helper. Lord Dufferin never knew any more about it, and he vainly sought to explain by what sorcery the hand of destiny had saved him from peril by lifting, in some mysterious way, a corner of the veil that is over that part of eternity which we call the future. This fantastic adventure was an actual happening. Lord Dufferin was a relative of Madame de Maritre, and the family was kept informed of its course. Since this is the earliest provable instance of Dufferin being connected with the elevator ghost, perhaps he, in fact, never told the story himself during his life, but it was inserted into the story afterwards by others. Whatever the truth, by the 1940s, the story was so well established that the best-selling British novelist of occult thrillers, and personal favourite of mine, Dennis Wheatley, was able to drop a mention of it in his book The Haunting of Toby Jug, without even having to give the reader all the details. Everyone must have heard of the case of that type by which the late Marquis of Dufferin and Ava escaped being dashed to death in a falling lift while on post as British ambassador in Paris. In that affair, the unmistakably psychic nature of the warning was underlined by the fact of its having been conveyed to him by seeing an apparition. He vouched for that himself, and one can hardly question the veracity of such a man as the late Lord Dufferin. As it happens, this quote follows a mention by Wheatley of the investigations of none other than Camille Flammarion, leaving one in no doubt that the Frenchman's account of the elevator ghost is the version Wheatley is familiar with. So if Flammarion was the first person to tell the tale of Dufferin and the ghost in 1921, years after the Lord's own death, where did he, or his letter-writing acquaintance, get the story from? Well, according to Legitimacy of Unbelief, the collected papers of Piet Hein Hobens, only a few years after the publication of Flammarion's book, a sceptical article written in 1926 outed the ghost story as being in fact a well-known urban legend. However, the original version of this article by one Klink Gostrom is in German, with more recent commentary on it by Emilio Cervadio, only available in Italian, so for me at least, the trail runs cold there. However, the BBC man Melvin Harris mentions that in 1949, Dufferin's granddaughter states the 1921 version of the story is a new version of an old story that her grandfather used to tell about someone else. Confused yet? So perhaps Dufferin did tell this story during his lifetime, just not necessarily about himself. Maybe that detail changed later on. And, as will become clear, stories similar to this were in the public consciousness during his lifetime in both urban legend and clearly fictional versions. 
After Dufferin's death, either Flammarion or his correspondent Maritre retold the story, this time casting Dufferin as the protagonist instead of the narrator, either as a genuine mistake or in order to make the story seem more immediate. It's the friend-of-a-friend effect familiar to anyone who's ever heard an urban legend. This final Dufferin-centric version of the story is published in Flammarion's book in 1921, and the legend seems to have taken off from there. There are any number of popular 19th century ghost stories featuring supernatural warnings that could have served as the model for Dufferin or Flammarion, whoever truly told the tale first, many of which have elements that tally closely with the story of the elevator ghost. Now, the best resource on these stories is an incredibly thorough series of articles called Premonitory Tales, from Dickens' Signalman to the radio broadcasts of A.J. Allen, from the blog Tichy, if I'm saying that correctly. It's tychy.wordpress.com. And this has been a tremendous resource for me during the recording of this episode. The article is well worth checking out for those who want to follow this trope in fiction down the rabbit hole. But I'm just going to mention a couple of stories that really caught my attention. One of these stories that predates the Dufferin account is The Signal Man by Charles Dickens, written in 1866, without a doubt one of the great Victorian ghost stories. And that's saying a lot, as this really was the era when the form arguably reached its peak. This spooky tale is about a man who works in a signal box outside a railway tunnel in a remote country location. His job is both tedious and anxiety-inducing, as his responsibility is great. If he does not operate the train signals correctly, a terrible accident could happen and many people could die. But even this is not his greatest concern, for the man in fact is haunted by a rather chilling spectre. Several times he sees the figure of a man standing in the mouth of the nearby railway tunnel, with one hand over his face and the other waving wildly. Sometimes the apparition is accompanied by the sound of mysterious bells and a voice calling, For God's sake, get out of the way! On at least two occasions, the ghost seems to be trying to warn him of something, for its appearance is followed by tragedy. I won't spoil the ending, for the story is well worth tracking down and reading, but it's enough for our purposes to note that the tale contains the central idea of a ghost that appears in order to deliver a warning. The story isn't as simple, as cut and dry as the Dufferin tale, it's more mysterious, and the warning and the ghost perform a slightly different function within the story than Dufferin's ghost does. But the idea of supernatural beings stepping from the realm beyond into our world to deliver a warning to us mortals is certainly common to both stories. Another potential source of the Dufferin yarn and a far more bizarre short story altogether, is The Yellow Sign by Robert W. Chambers from 1895. However successful Dickens' signal man was at hinting of the complex and inexplicable machinations of the supernatural warning system, it still conforms to the basic tenets of a Victorian ghost story. That is to say, the story holds together, is internally consistent, and we get something of an explanation as to what was really going on. The Yellow Sign takes a vastly different approach to the same idea, almost approaching something of a surrealist, postmodern take on the entire notion of a short story. The Yellow Sign is from an infamous book of weird short stories called The King in Yellow, 
Perhaps, like me, you first became interested in this book when it was slyly referenced in the fantastic first season of True Detective back in 2014. The stories within The King in Yellow do not always feature the same characters and sometimes do not even seem to be taking place in the same universe or timeline. That's how weird they are. But some of them are connected by the presence of a play called The King in Yellow, which is believed to drive those who read it insane. Throughout the book, Chambers throws out the established expectations of Victorian storytelling. Things are constantly left unexplained, and the litany of insane and unreliable narrators leave us constantly questioning just how much of their stories we are to take as truth, and how much are simply the babbling of those who have had their minds bent by the titular play. The connections to the work of H.P. Lovecraft are obvious and frequently mentioned, but it is interesting to note that even though he was a fan of The King in Yellow, by all accounts Lovecraft came to the book rather late in his career, at a time when he had actually already formed much of his infamous universe of sanity-shattering truth and forbidden books. Anyway, The Yellow Sign is one of the best and the strangest stories in The King in Yellow, and also well worth a read, so I won't spoil too much. It's about a decadent 1890s artist living in New York and the woman who is his model. They both begin having dreams about a man with a horrible, pale, death-like face who drives a hearse through the streets beneath their window. When they look closer, they see that the artist himself is in the coffin that the hearse is carrying. The artist is able to brush off these dreams as nonsense, but when the ghastly, white-faced man from the dreams shows up for real at the church across the street from his studio, he begins to suspect that disappearance may be some kind of supernatural warning. Now some of the details here, as you may have noticed, are far closer to the Dufferin story. In particular, the dream, the coffin, and the man with the terrifying white face who serves as a message or warning. The publication date, 1895, is roughly when the Dufferin story is supposed to have taken place, at least assuming it happens during the time when he really was in Paris, though of course that varies wildly depending on who's doing the telling. Still, it does seem plausible that some details from this story later on formed the basis of the urban legend that, probably much later, became attached to Lord Dufferin. Dufferin's story, though, is a classic and very simple two-beat story. It has a setup and a payoff, the dream at Tullamore and the lift accident in Paris. The yellow sign, while contributing some key elements to this tale, in my opinion, also contains a plethora of other supernatural and unexplained elements, mainly related to Chambers' baffling mythos of the mysterious Yellow King and his madness-inducing play. It's altogether a more complicated and nebulous story. Interestingly, another version of the tale seems to have attached itself to the 19th century American mystic Edgar Cayce, who I mentioned previously also in the Bridie Murphy episode. Casey was known as the Sleeping Prophet due to his habit of going into a trance and making accurate medical pronouncements about sick people, as well as rather less accurate predictions of the future and delivering messages from lost Atlantis. He was hugely influential on the development in America of spiritualism and what became New Age thought. This version of the story has our hero, Edgar Casey entering a department store in America and preparing to enter a lift when he suddenly notices that none of the people inside have auras. 
Casey, you see, is given to seeing people's auras, the coloured glow that shows them what someone's personality and sometimes even their destiny may be. So when he sees these elevator occupants who have no aura, he gets spooked and refuses to get into the lift. Seconds later, the lift plunges into the shaft and all inside are killed. It's implied that the lack of auras was a tip that these people had no destiny, no future. Unfortunately, this story appears to be even more apocryphal than Dufferin's, and true to its urban legend origins, no first-hand version of it is easily available. It appears that Casey himself probably never told this story, but instead it became attached to him after his death, perhaps as an example of the kind of thing that would happen to Casey, being a mystic, or perhaps to say that Casey was the kind of person who might tell a story like this. Ultimately, the more we look for its origin, the more the Dufferin story seems to disappear into the ether, like his phantom elevator operator did. It's in the nature of such legends to have indeterminate origins. As details are added or removed over many years, a colourful or suitable personality is attached, and narrative is streamlined for maximum efficiency and viral transmission, until we are left with a core nugget of pure story, a brief and unforgettable meme that performs its function perfectly and cannot be reduced any further. When Lord Dufferin was a young man, before Canada and before India, and before the story that was to be his lasting legacy, alongside Toronto metro stops, of course, he was famous for his witty travel writing. In 1856, he published Letters from High Latitudes, an insightful and hilarious take on his travel in the northern European countries. I can't discuss Dufferin without giving at least a brief example of his writing, and though it does not have anything really to do with his ghost story, I think it helps to show exactly why he was such a popular and celebrated storyteller. The following, somewhat irreverent fraction, is an account of his dinner with the political elite of Reykjavik in Iceland. Then began a series of transactions of which I have no distinct recollection. In fact, the events of the next five hours recur to me as in great disarray, as reappear the vestiges of a country that has been disfigured by some deluge. If I give you anything like a connected account of what passed, you must thank Sigurd's more solid temperament. For the doctor looked quite foolish when I asked him, tried to feel my pulse, could not find it, and then wrote a prescription, which I believe to be nothing more than an invoice of the number of bottles he himself disposed of. I gather then from evidence, internal and otherwise, that the dinner was excellent, and that we were helped in Benjamite proportions. But as before the soup was finished, I was already hard at work hobnobbing with my two neighbours, it is not to be expected I should remember the bill of fare. Soon, however, things began to look more serious even than I had expected. I knew well that to refuse a toast or to half-empty your glass was considered churlish. I had come determined to accept my host's hospitality as cordially as it was offered. I was willing, at a pinch, to pay de ma personne. Should he not be content with seeing me at his table, I was ready, if need be, to remain under it. But at the rate we were then going, it seemed probable his consummation would take place before the second course. So, after having exchanged a dozen rounds of sherry and champagne with my two neighbours, I pretended not to observe that my glass had been refilled, and, like the sea captain, who, slipping from between his two opponents, left them to blaze away at each other the long night through, withdrew from the combat. But it would not do. 
with untasted bumpers and dejected faces, they politely waited until I should give the signal for a renewal of hostilities, as they well deserved to be called. Then the twenty guests poured down on me in succession. I really thought I should have run away from the house, but the true family blood, I suppose, began to show itself, and with a calmness almost frightful, I received them one by one. After this began the public toasts. And that was Lord Dufferin's Irish Ghost Story. You've been listening, of course, to Wide Atlantic Weird, and I'm Kean. I hope you enjoyed that little trip into the vaults. As usual, we really love interaction. We love reviews, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Put on those lovely stars, say something nice, and get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or over on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. As always, if you have any weird stories yourself, we'd love to hear them. We, uh, as the old saying goes, we want to believe, but the evidence has to be good. So once again, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.